we want to get into our Bible study. Amen. So if you have a Bible with you, if you'll turn to John chapter 12 this morning, the fourth book of the New Testament, chapter 12, we'll begin reading at verse 12. We do read that the next day a great multitude had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. In verse 16, the disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Let's pray. Father, as we come to you this morning, as we begin Holy Week or as we uh, look at this account of the triumphal entry of Jesus, Father, how we need to be reminded of life when around us what we have seen is death. This morning there are ten families that are grieving very deeply for the loss of a loved one, what seemed to be so senseless. We've seen it before, Lord, too often. And Father, I just pray that you bring comfort to those families. I pray that you bring comfort to the law enforcement family that lost one of their own from Boulder Police Department. We thank you for their bravery. We thank you that they, they rushed to save lives. But Lord, they are a family. And they grieve. We know that their work is honorable and good. Your word declares it. We thank you that they're here for our safety. We just pray for your hand to be upon them as they grieve as a law enforcement family. I know it's devastating to an agency, but to all who are involved, first responders. I pray for the people that were there that saw these events unfold and the, the images in their minds, the trauma that they're going through. Lord, you bring comfort to them, healing. Lord, we pray for the chaplains, for the pastors, the victim advocates, that you give them wisdom. Lord, that they would be able to share a message of hope, of comfort, of life, because you are life. And as we saw the tornadoes go through the south and and people lost their lives and homes were destroyed, we, we also pray those who have Jesus Christ in their hearts would be able to bring comfort to them. And Lord, that as they rebuild, as they mourn, we're reminded of a world that there's sin and Lord, there's devastation, devastation, destruction. There's, it's a fallen world, but we can hold on to the fact that we know that you're on the throne and you have a glorious plan for us. So, Lord, this morning we mourn with those who mourn and we rejoice with those who rejoice. 
And Father, I pray that as we look at this account that we're reminded of something very important. That we are to speak of Jesus and lift him up. I pray our hearts would be ready to receive your word right now. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So this week, as I've mentioned to you, as, as most of you know, is, is known as uh, Holy Week. It's the last week of Jesus' life and ministry before his resurrection. And it begins with Jesus coming into Jerusalem, as we've already said, on what is called Palm Sunday, or the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And it's during these final days of Jesus' ministry that the next day, on Monday, he would cleanse the temple, and he would go in, and he would drive out the, the ones who were selling. And it was the priests that oversaw all of this, the selling of the, the animals for sacrifice. Uh, he would overturn the money changers' tables, and he would rebuke the religious leaders. We know that the synoptic gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record that. Now, John doesn't record that cleansing of the temple in his final week before his death. John records his first cleansing of the temple. There was two cleansings that took place, and that's in John chapter 2 in the first year of his ministry. So after the cleansing of the temple, the religious leaders are coming to him. Uh, they are trying to trap him. They are trying to accuse him trying to find fault with him because they're really desiring to destroy Jesus. And Jesus, during this last week, within his public ministry, he would gather his disciples in that upper room, again, which we're going to look at on Wednesday. And a quarter of John's gospel is dedicated to what is called the upper room discourse. He would then make his way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he would be arrested by a detachment of troops that come with weapons and clubs and torches, being led by Judas, the betrayer. And Jesus then would be bound up, taken back to Jerusalem. He, he would be uh, set with, uh, go with six, uh, a series of six trials, three before the religious leaders, and then three before the civil leaders, before Pontius Pilate, Herod, and Pilate again, and then he would stand before the people. And the crowds would cry out, crucify him, crucify him. We know that he would go through tremendous suffering and beating and scourging. The religious leaders beat him. The Romans beat him. Isaiah prophesied that they would pull out his beard, that they scourged him. We know that they pounded a crown of thorns around his scalp. They would flog him, scourge him. And then they would pin him to a cross where he would take that cross. He's led down the narrow streets of Jerusalem called the Way of Sorrows, the Via Della Rosa. And out the Damascus Gate into that hill called Golgotha in the Hebrew tongue, Calvary, where he would be pinned to that cross and he would hang between heaven and earth crucified. We'll look at that on Friday. And on the third day, the first day of the week, he rises from the grave as he was put into the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a tomb that had never been used, and he only borrowed it for three days. And he rose again, and that's what we're going to celebrate next weekend. But on this first day of the week, <laughs> Palm Sunday, let's begin to look at his triumphal entry into Jerusalem once again. We read in verse 12, that the next day a great multitude that had come to the feast, that is the Passover feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. The triumphal entry of Jesus, recorded in all four Gospels, Matthew 21, 
Mark chapter 11, Luke chapter 19, and John chapter 12. And we know that there's a number of things that took place right before his final week that really helped set the stage of what is, is happening here. After uh, weeks prior, to, or that is, uh, a few weeks prior to this, we read that in the previous chapter that Jesus raised Lazarus from the grave. You can read that in John chapter 11. There in Bethany. Bethany called the town of Mary, only about two miles from Jerusalem on the east side of the Mount of Olives. Some scholars have called that miracle of raising Lazarus from the grave, the miracle of miracles in the work in ministry ministry of Jesus before his death and resurrection. It was, of course, that at that time that Jesus would declare that I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And as a result of that miracle, being close to Jerusalem, the word would spread very quickly of Lazarus being risen from the grave. John's narrative tells us in verse 45 of chapter 11 that many believed in him. And it was at that time that the religious leaders were more determined to put Jesus to death because they're afraid. Uh, they're looking for a break. They're, they're thinking that we're going to lose our position. We're going to lose our authority with the people. And finally, they get their break. Here comes Judas that said, I'm willing to betray him into your hands. We know that many of the religious leaders, the chief priests, were of the sect of the Sadducees. We've read about the Pharisees, and we read about the Sadducees. The Sadducees, uh, they were ones that they didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in the afterlife. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't really believe in much of anything. And they want not only Jesus dead, but they want Lazarus dead as well because he's bad theology for them. Jesus would withdraw from there. He would spend some time in the area of Perea, that is on the east side of the Jordan River. And then he would set his face to go to Jerusalem. He has told his disciples, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. We've seen that going through Matthew on Sunday morning. And I'm going to be handed over to those chief priests and those elders. And I'm going to be put to death. But I'm going to rise again after three days. And they're very sorrowful as they're hearing that. And he passes through as he makes his way up to Jerusalem. He comes into the Jordan Valley near the Dead Sea. The lowest point on the face of the earth, he passes through Jericho. And we know that that's where blind Bartimaeus was healed. And, and we also know that as he passes through Jericho, that Luke uniquely records the story of Zacchaeus, the chief tax collector that was up in a tree. And, and Jesus looked up and he said, Zacchaeus, come down from there. I'm coming over to your house today. And Zacchaeus would get saved. And then Jesus would begin with the rest of the people. We know that there's a great multitude that is with him. We know that Luke uniquely records that the multitude, they're expecting the kingdom of God to appear right away. And he begins to make that ascent from the Jordan Valley up to Jerusalem, about 25 miles. They would sing as they would go to the feast, the songs of the ascents that you read about in Psalm 120 through 134. And as he's making his way there, he would tell the people the parable of the minas. There was a nobleman that gave each one of his servants a mina. And the nobleman went away 
to, to receive a kingdom and he would come back. And those servants were to give an account of what was entrusted to them. Right before Jesus makes his triumphal entry, he stops at Bethany, called the town of Mary. He's at the house of Simon the leper, according to Mark's gospel. And that is where Mary anoints Jesus for his burial. And with all that in mind, Jesus now comes to the top of the Mount of Olives that overlooks Jerusalem. And as he comes there, there's that great multitude coming up from the Jordan Valley with him. But we also know that Jerusalem, during the feast, and particularly the Passover feast, that some historians believe that it would swell to as many as two million people. People coming from all over Israel. They came from northern Africa. They would come from the known Roman Empire. People would travel there. And that's why they had the selling of the sacrifices of the sheep to try to bring a sheep for a Passover sacrifice. It was impossible. So you could go there and you could buy one. But again, the priests are there and they're ripping the people off. And they're you know, telling them you have to exchange your coins. We're not going to take Roman coinage. You got to exchange it for temple coinage to give an offering to the temple. All that's going on. There's a lot of activity. The city would have people there staying in the city at people's homes. Uh, the city had people moving. The marketplaces were open. And them moving as uh, they would camp out, that is, out on the hillsides of Jerusalem. It's an incredible scene. And as this multitude comes up with Jesus to the Mount of Olives, about ready to come into Jerusalem, that we will read in Matthew chapter 21, verse 10, that Jesus, we know that, that it tells us when he comes to the Mount of Olives that the city was moved. That word in the Greek means a moving, a, a shaking, where we actually get our word seismic. Jerusalem has never seen anything like this before. And he comes to this Jerusalem. And the multitude, verse 13, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. When Jesus had found a young donkey, he sat on it, as it is written, that fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now we know from the other gospels that Jesus, when he was on the Mount of Olives, he told a couple of his disciples, go to a nearby village, and you'll find a colt on which no, no one has sat on it. Loose it and bring it to me. And if anyone asks, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. And I like that. Because Jesus has need of you. He has need of you. And the one thing that that young colt did was to lift Jesus up as he came into the city. And that is what you and I are to do. To lift Jesus up. The attention wasn't on the colt. The colt was really nothing. Matter of fact, during this time as well, many Roman soldiers would come into the city. They want to make sure that the, they keep the peace. They want to make sure there isn't an uprising, an insurrection of some sort. So there's thousands of Roman soldiers. They're watching this. They're probably laughing. They're probably scoffing. This is your king riding on a colt? If he is really a king, then he'd come riding in on a stallion. He would be in military attire. But as we call this the triumphal entry, we know that that really doesn't come until Revelation chapter 19, when he comes back in the second coming, when he's going to come back to this mount, the Mount of Olives. 
And at that time, we were told that, that he will be on a magnificent white horse, coming in great power and glory, and the armies of heaven are going to follow him. That's you and me. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings. And here they're crying out the King of Israel. Matthew and Mark records they're crying out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Luke writes, they cried out, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. All four Gospels give clear indication that they are are ascribing the title Messiah to him. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of all lords. And when he comes back in his second coming, he will touch down on the Mount of Olives. And Zechariah tells us in his prophecies that the mount will split in half and then he's going to usher in the kingdom. But you see, the people right now, they are expecting that to happen immediately. They do not understand that they are in the middle of God's redemptive plan. That he hasn't come the first time here to usher in the kingdom. But he's come to go to a cross. So that we can be forgiven and be part of a kingdom that will come and will last forever. And he wants to use you. He has need of you, of me. We've been given a mina. We've been given the gospel, haven't we? We embrace it in the truth of God's word. And you may think that, Lord, I don't have much to offer. Do you think that cult of a donkey had much to offer? But here he is lifting Jesus up as he makes his way, Jesus, from the Mount of Olives down the slope and he passes the Garden of Gethsemane and across the Kidron Valley and into the city of Jerusalem. He has need of you. Paul would write to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty and the base things of the world and the things that are despised. God has chosen and the things that are not to bring to naught the things that are that no flesh will glory in his presence. He wants to use you to lift Jesus up. And the crowds, they don't understand what really is taking place here. They're cheering. They're waving the palm branches. They're crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. And and as a lot of you know, that that was a tradition that was started about 200 years before the triumphal entry, before Jesus came, as we've talked about this in our previous studies of the, the triumphal entry, also in our study of the book of Daniel, that Daniel, that he would prophesy that there would be the Syrian king that would come along, that Greece is going to, to take over the Medo-Persian empire, Alexander the Great, and then when he died, his empire divided up to four generals, and over time, there would be the Syrian king about 165 B.C., before, 200 years before this time, the Syrian king, Antiochus Epiphanes. He was a terrible, horrible, cruel man. He came into Jerusalem. He persecuted the priests. He took a pig and he slaughtered a pig there in the temple and desecrated the temple. He made the priests drink pig's blood. Of course, pigs were considered unclean. He put up an idol there in the temple. He killed many Jews. It was a horrible, terrible time. But then Judas Maccabee, his brothers would rise up. 
They would lead this revolt against Antiochus Epiphanes. And, and over about nine years of struggle, they would finally drive Antiochus out of Jerusalem and the Syrian soldiers. And the people celebrated. They cleansed the temple, cleaned it up, relit the menorah. That's where we get Hanukkah from. Is a story for another time. And as they did, they celebrated by cutting down palm branches, waving them. And it was symbolic of being freed from political, military oppression. It was a symbol uh, of Jewish nationalism. And that's what the people want. Hey, he's going to usher in the kingdom right now. The sky's about ready to open up. Angels are going to descend. And boy, is Rome going to get theirs. And we are going to be freed from their political, military oppression. And they don't understand that the greatest need was to be freed of sin. And that's why he was going to go to the cross. Joseph, remember Matthew chapter 1? Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, the angel said to him. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she's going to bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua, the Lord thy salvation. And he's going to save his people, not from Rome, but from sin. You see, in a few days, as you know, after this, when they realize he's not ushering in the kingdom like we thought he was, as he rode into Jerusalem, they're going to be crying out, crucify him, crucify him. We will not have this man rule over us. We have but one king, that is Caesar. Now we know at this time that Luke's gospel tells us that the religious leaders, that they're complaining. They're telling Jesus, tell your disciples to be quiet because the people were ascribing to him with their cries, title Messiah, as I said, quoting from Psalm 118. And Jesus, here is the people that they are celebrating. Uh, they're cheering. Here are the religious leaders. They're complaining. And Jesus, he's crying. He's weeping. Because he knew that he was going to be rejected. Today we lift Jesus up. And there are more and more people that are putting pressure on you and me to be quiet. You shut up about this gospel, about Jesus being forgiven of sin. You be silent. And we need to let people know the truth, that there's one way to be forgiven of sin, and that's through the cross of Jesus Christ. And we lift up Jesus, and we need to let them know that he was lifted up on a cross for them. You see, after Paul writes to the, the Corinthians at the end of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians that God chose the foolish things of the world, that as you move into chapter 2, and I love it here, that I'll read it to you in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians, that I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come in the excellence of speech or wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified." Jesus would say that if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. I will draw all men to myself. When I be lifted up on the cross, for every generation, for every tribe, tongue, people, and nations, that I will draw them to me because I am their hope. There can be a lot of talk today about how do we reach this generation? 
How do we reach those who are unbelievers? There can be a lot of talk about how we can be culturally relevant and how do we reach the young people? How do we relate to them? And so there's a lot of emphasis that can be on methods or you do things this way and this presentation and use these words and this is what you do and the light's just right. All these different things. But I want to tell you what the Lord has laid on my heart and what I see very clearly in the Word of God. And it's simply this. Let people see Jesus. Let people see Jesus. Paul writing to the Corinthians that we're all into philosophy and appearance and, you know, presentation and all of this. He said, I didn't come in human wisdom or in excellence of speech or persuasive words. But I came in the demonstration of power of the Holy Spirit. So that your faith is not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And I was determined not to know anything but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And as we find ourselves in John chapter 12, I, I want to read to you in verse 20 through 24. And as we read it there, that now there were certain Greeks among those who came to worship at the feast. Now you think, these are Gentiles, these are Greeks. Why are they coming to Jerusalem to celebrate? And the reason is, is because Jerusalem had that magnificent temple. It was one of the wonders of the world. Herod the Great had started a remodel uh, before Jesus was even born to remodel the temple, expand the courtyards, and, and to remodel the temple with magnificent stones overlaid with gold. It was it an was incredible building. And as the Greeks, they believed in many gods, they thought, well, greater the temple than greater the God. And here, the God of Israel, they have this temple that is magnificent in Jerusalem, so we want to go. They came, as John records, to worship. We want to know about him. We want to see this God that has a magnificent temple, and it was be a witness to them of the reality of God. And I believe that's one of the reasons why Jesus was so upset with the religious leaders, among many. But here he says that you've made my father's house a den of thieves. And Isaiah, he's quoting from there that my father's house is to be a house of prayer. You made my father's house a house of prayer into a den of thieves, Jesus said. Isaiah writes that the Father's house is a house of prayer to all the nations. It was to be a testimony of the goodness and the greatness of God. And here they would come in and see the religious leaders just ripping the people off. So can I ask us a question this morning? Honestly, and it's for me as well. What do people see when they come into this place? I know that there's no perfect church out there. I know that we have failings and frailties and shortcomings, but what I pray, especially in the day in which we're in, is people are coming and they are hurting and they're wondering and they're confused. That they can hear the truth of God's word and see the reality of God in our lives as we're loving others. What do people see? What do they see in me and in you as we're out in the community, as you go to work, with your family, in your neighborhood? What do they see? You've made my father's house a house of prayer into a den of thieves. 
to be a house for all the nations. So they're coming, and no doubt as they come to see this magnificent temple, somehow they hear about Jesus. Probably, I think, no doubt that they were there in this time of the triumphal entry, and they're wondering, who is this Jesus? We wish to see him. And they come to Philip, as we read in verse 21, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn, Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Jesus' answer to them may seem kind of strange. What do you mean? He's talking about a grain of wheat that falls to the ground and remains alone. It dies and it produces much grain. What is that all about? Remember, these are Greeks. These aren't ones that are familiar with the Old Testament prophecies concerning the coming of Messiah. The suffering Messiah or the reigning Messiah. They don't have those prophecies. These are men of philosophy. These are men of science. So Jesus says, a grain of wheat that falls to the ground remains alone. It dies and produces much wheat. In other words, what Jesus was saying to them, if you really want to see me, listen. They must see me in the light of my death, burial, and resurrection. And you see, that's what we are to do. We are to lift Jesus up so they can see Jesus. Not a church, not a pastor, not a program. But to tell people that he was lifted up on the cross for them. Nicodemus, the master teacher of Israel, John chapter 3. If anyone will see the kingdom of God, they must be born again. But Nicodemus, I must, the second must of the chapter that Nicodemus, I must be lifted up just as Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness. And Jesus making a reference to the book of Numbers. Nicodemus would know the story. He was the master teacher of Israel. Yeah, Numbers, where the children of Israel were beaten, bitten by poisonous snakes. And God told Moses, put a brass serpent on a pole and put it in the middle of the camp. And whoever looks at it is going to be healed. Jesus said, I must be lifted up. Brass in the Old Testament speaks of judgment. He went to that cross and was lifted up and took the judgment for you, for me, as our sins were placed on him. And the one who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And he took our sins upon himself. And as he would shed his blood... His body convulsing. All of his bones are out of joint, beaten beyond recognition on that cross. He would cry out, as we're going to see on Friday, it is finished. It is finished. He paid the price. He did the work. And then they put him into the tomb owned by Joseph of Arimathea that had never been used. But he only borrowed it for three days, and he rose again. We want people to see Jesus in the light of his death and burial and resurrection. People will ask you and me, what makes Christianity true and unique? Why should I believe in Jesus? Why can't I believe in some other religious leader or some other world religion or embrace, you know, some other philosophy? What makes you guys right? Well, no, one, no one else died for you. 
Only Jesus went to the cross. And as he took that cross to that place of execution, he did it for you because of his love for you. And he knew that it would be the only hope that we would have to be forgiven of sin. Because we know that the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us. You may think that you're a good person, but you're not good enough. None of us are. You might think that I'm a righteous person because I've done this, been a good parent, I've, I've given to the community, I've raised my kids the best I know how, I'm nice to people. None of us are righteous enough. Jesus went to the cross that we might be forgiven and have eternal life. And he is the only one that died for you because of his love for you. And then we know that there's an empty tomb in Jerusalem. You see, every other religious leader, one who claims to be, you know, the way to God or a Messiah or I'm a Savior or... You know, I'm the way for you to be religious, you know, a religious guru or spiritual guru, whatever. They're all in their graves. And the ones that claim it today, they will end up in the grave. Only Jesus rose from the grave and conquered sin and death and validated what he did on the cross. He is alive. Let people see Jesus in the light of his death and burial and resurrection. And as we lift him up, People begin to be drawn to him. One more verse as we talk about the triumphal entry. Just a couple more minutes. Verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. So we know that the disciples, being with Jesus for three years, three plus years, Jesus told them, what was going to happen when they got to Jerusalem. They're really clueless. Matter of fact, when they come into the upper room, they're arguing, as we discussed last week, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? He's going to usher in the kingdom. Who's going to be the greatest? And as they don't understand what's going on, they're confused. They're troubled. Jesus said, don't be troubled in your heart. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. That they didn't understand until Jesus was glorified and resurrected. Even though this was a fulfillment of, of Zechariah chapter 9 and Daniel chapter 9, they did not understand those things until he was glorified. Then they remembered. So here's a key for you. If you think that Christianity is confusing to me, or the scriptures are just hard for me to understand. Here's what you do. Let Jesus be more and more glorified in your life. And you will begin to understand more. Let Jesus be more and more glorified in your life. Put the worldly stuff away. The world's philosophies, the world's way. The false ways. And receive the Lord and glorify the Lord in your life. And you keep learning and you keep growing. And you live for him. Serve him. Keep maturing. And as you do, you'll understand more. So, Father, we thank you.
We thank you so much for this word given to us. And Lord, we want you to be glorified in our lives. To just yield to you, trust you, and rest in your love. And Lord, you have given us a mina. That is the gospel, the truth of your word. So may we invest in that. And not only just in the words that we speak, but also in the life that we live. We believe the gospel, but we are to live the gospel as well. I pray that people would see the reality of Jesus Christ being worked out in us. We know they're not going to see perfection, but something of you. That we're not of this world, we're in the world. And that we would be ones that we would lift Jesus up to point to him, not exalt ourselves, but Jesus. Because he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. And I do want to pray this morning that perhaps you've never made a decision for Jesus Christ. He loves you. He knew that you would be here this morning on this day hearing this message. And he says, come. Do not put your hope in that which is false. Don't put your hope in yourself. Your hope is in Jesus Christ in the light of his death and burial and resurrection. He died for you for forgiveness of sin because we've all sinned, every single one of us. And he took your sin upon himself and was put into a grave and he rose again and conquered sin and death. And he's at the right hand of the Father. He is your salvation. There is none other. It's not in a church. It's not in trying to be good. It's not in your own righteousness. It is in Jesus Christ alone and coming in faith and surrendering to him and saying, Jesus, I need you as my Lord and Savior to sit upon the throne of my life and my heart to forgive me, to believe in you for forgiveness of sin and eternal life and right relationship with the Father. If that's you, today is the day of salvation because tomorrow isn't promised to any of us. We saw people this week that their life ended. They never thought it was the furthest thing maybe perhaps from them. We don't know what tomorrow holds, but we know that, Lord, you hold our lives. You hold every breath we take in your hand. And if you're not right with God, get right with him. Call upon Jesus. Ask for forgiveness. Surrender your life to him. Come to salvation. The invitation has always come. You can pray sincerely in your heart that Jesus, I come and I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on that cross for me. Forgive me and you rose again in your life speaking to me. Set upon the throne of my heart as my personal Lord and Savior. And I want to know you and walk with you and glorify you. Thank you for this new beginning. Thank you for hearing my prayer and bringing me into the family of God in Jesus' name. And for all of us, may we take the mina that we have and invest it in people around us because we are here for such a time as this. Give them a message of hope to be light. The world desperately needs it. The 
light in the darkness, wisdom in the confusion. We bring comfort. People are in more despair than ever before. To know that Jesus is on the throne and he is going to come back. So Lord, bless us this week. Help us be a vessel used of you. We look forward to celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. God is good, isn't he?